So tonight we're going to continue our discussion of what we started last week. And it's looking at the world today and the people that come to the party today as opposed to those that built the party in 1919 and onward. Have the character essence of people changed under more years of capitalism? Has it changed to where the individual is almost unidentified from the individual years ago, really years ago? Value system is the value system. Technology, we all know about that. Technology is vastly different. And how has that affected the value system? How has the value system affected our ideology? So I'm just going to read through this one section that I came across. 1974. Grama is the official newspaper organ of the Communist Party of Cuba. And on June 3rd issue, and in English, June 16th, so you can look all this up. The article is called Revisionism, comma, Opportunism, comma, Polymarxism. The author, Gaspar, G-A-S-P-A-R, Jorge, J-O-R-G-E, Garcia, G-A-R-C-I-A, Gallo, G-A-L-L-O. They did a whole expose on revisionism, opportunism, and something they called poly, P-O-L-Y, poly-Marxism. Now, poly actually means many, but this is a term that they discuss in their daily paper where everyone reads, and I found it fascinating because it deals with our experience in the CP, our experience in the Socialist Party. What is the relationship between a revisionist and an opportunist? I'll repeat the question. If you want to write it down, you can. What is the relationship between a revisionist and an opportunist? Question mark. And here's the answer that was given by the party. A revisionist is one who abandons, that word is key, abandons such principles and fundamental laws, one of the most common procedures of revisionists is to take a particular phenomenon, a special phenomenon, and raise it, elevate it to the level of a universal truth. Now, that may be a little deep for some people, so I'm going to go through this idea again. There are exceptions to every rule. We were told that when we were children, and that is very valid. There are exceptions to every rule. But are the exceptions such that the rule itself changes and that we abandon the rule? I don't know if everybody understands what that means. Marxism-Leninism has proven to be a science. It has fundamental laws. A revisionist is one who abandons those fundamental laws and starts raising questions of particular phenomenon. Well, 
That's true, but, and you all know the but is a negation of the first part of a sentence in our language. As to the relationship between a revisionist, one who changes, who revises, and an opportunist, one who uses situation. Now remember, Marx uses the term a little differently than we use it in the vernacular. We use an opportunist as one who takes the situation and uses it to the advantage of the person who's trying to make a point or pushing a line. Marx uses the term opportunist as one who takes the situation and uses it to supposedly help our class. But in reality, it ditches, gets rid of our fundamental laws. So in the end, it doesn't help us. Again, the article. We say that the relationship between a revisionist and opportunist is that the latter is someone who, laying aside all the principles, adapts themselves to whatever situation may be advantageous to his class objectives. To this we may add, in politics, which means ideology, revisionism and opportunism usually go hand in hand because they are two faces of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. For, and this is the key, revisionism is nothing but a poor theoretical excuse for opportunism. Now you could sense in this, those who had this in high school or college, the idea of situation ethics, if you ever heard that term. Some of that is in that. I saw that right away. And I'm going to finish this last thing and then open up for questions. This may be a little deep for some people, but if you don't understand it, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't understand it. That's the way we learn. If we keep quiet, we'll never understand anything. In his work called Marxism and Revisionism, it's the Collected Works of Lenin, Volume 15, pages 37 to 38. Lenin said, I'm going to give you the quote, to determine its conduct from case to case, example to example, to adapt ourselves to the event of the day and to the chopping and the changing of the petty politics of the day, to forget the primary interest of the working class and the basic features of the entire capitalist system, of all the capitalist countries, of all capitalist evolution, to sacrifice these primary interests for the real or assumed advantages of the moment, of the moment. Such is the policy of revisionism. I found this fascinating. It has to do with what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to open it up to any kind of question. When do we accept an advancement of theory, such as adding Leninism to Marxism-Leninism, 
versus rejecting that advancement as revisionist, perhaps as one would for Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. Is there a way that we can have explained the distinction between the two? Marxism-Leninism is the framework of dialectical and historical materialism. And that is the science. That's the precise name for it. The shorthand for it is Marxism-Leninism, and that's where it stops. There were periods in the communist movement when they tried to say Stalinism. And there is no such thing as Stalinism, and Stalin himself said that. He said, I'm Lenin's disciple. I'm Lenin's best pupil. So he followed Lenin's advice. I was just wondering if anyone could give me an example, whether real or hypothetical, of someone making the kind of revision which could be considered revisionist, and maybe another one that could represent an instance of opportunism. Opportunism is generally a situation where someone is, for example, betraying the core ideology of Marxism-Leninism to further a particular tactic or strategy. It usually involves selling out the party and the proletariat in order to further momentarily and only for the immediate future of a particular campaign. Also, if we think on Lovestone and what he did in the party in the 20s, that could be looked at as both revisionism and also as opportunism because he was siding with the rightist and with reactionary forces. I got from what Angela read that if you use the theme of does it support the working masses, that that's the criteria to determine whether it might be revisionism or opportunism. In other words, the litmus test is how does it support the working masses as a guideline? Not exactly. Lenin refers to reforms under capitalism. If it helps the working class, then we as communists should support the reform. He does not in any way say that that reform will not be kept forever, that will be given back in the struggle of the bourgeois democracy. We will lose it, whereas under socialism, the reform becomes permanent until you have a counter-revolution, which is what happened in 1991. Once you have a counter-revolution, bets are off because you're now going back to capitalism. So that quote is referred to in Lenin's discussion on the, whether or not we should be supporting reforms. And if it helps the working class, we should. He also refers to individuals in the leadership of the movement, if those leaders at a certain period of time are putting through policies that are beneficial to the working class, then those leaders are playing a progressive role. If not, they're playing a reactionary role. So an individual can play a progressive positive role in 1935 and then play a negative role in 1943, for example. I'd like to know if in the Marxist-Leninist movement, if there have been notable disagreements as to what was and what was not revisionist in the 20th century. 
the Sino-Soviet split around 1962, the idea that there was no center of communist thought. So communist international thought had various tendencies. One was Maoism and China. One was the USSR and Khrushchev. And they were pretty much opposed to each other. They tended toward nationalism, which was very destructive. So there was a lot of disagreement ideologically at that time. And later in the 80s, there was a lot of disagreement about Euro-communism falling back to social democratic sorts of strategies and tactics. So it's not something new. I mean, these disagreements have gone on for a long time. The old party, it's, as I understand it, commonly accepted that they became revisionist. And my question is, since we've discovered that there is a difference, substantial difference between revisionism and opportunism, was opportunism also in play and if possible, how was it? Let me put it this way. The people that use the term revisionism basically come from a Maoist background. Why do I say that? Because when Lenin used the term, he wasn't talking about communist parties. He was talking about social democratic parties. And social democratic parties are, by their very nature, reformist and revisionist. They have changed what Marx said to something that's much more acceptable to the ruling class. No revolution, no upheaval, allowing the capitalists to retain economic footholds in the country. That's all part of revising, changing what Marx had originally discussed. So remember that. You're going to need that later on, that it's wrong, always wrong, to allow the capitalists to have a foothold in the new society that we're building. It's not acceptable. So just remember that. Put that someplace in your mind. We're talking about who we're talking to. If we're talking to communists, the word has a different terminology than if we're dealing with social democrats. I guess the last part of my question was just simply, was opportunism it's part of part involved of, on the... Yes. That yeah, was what okay. Lenin said. That's what he said. Volume 15, pages 37 to 38, to collect the words of Lenin. He talks about revisionism is nothing but a poor theoretical excuse for opportunism. So there's two sides of the same coin. Until today, I understood the essence of revisionism to be the abandonment of a theory of class struggle. But today we heard this definition about taking individual phenomenon that are outliers and trying to elevate it to a universal phenomenon. So is that definition that I had correct at all? Is it leaving anything out? Your definition, comrade, was partial. It was not enough. It goes much more than just that. That's all that Lenin was saying. It's more than just abandoning the class struggle. It's also taking the fundamental laws of Marxism-Leninism, taking those fundamental laws and saying they don't apply anymore because the particular phenomenon elevates and takes precedence and therefore it becomes the universal. So 
when you say there's an exception to the rule, the rule goes out the window, and the exception is what's stressed. I've been re-listening to the party's reading of left-wing communism and infantile disorder, which has been super helpful, by the way, but it raises a question to this class. What is the best way that an effective communist can simultaneously adapt to the material conditions of our time while avoiding opportunism? Just because I feel like we walk kind of a fine line at times. Yep, you're correct. Our whole operation is walking the fine line which members of the ultra-left and members of the right wing in the communist movement, the social democratic trend, they don't get it. They don't get it at all, but it is a fine line. You're correct, comrade. It is a fine line. Originally, Lenin was the first one to talk about conditions, but it was very general. Stalin came along and stressed the universality of capitalist exploitation, and basically said, if you put the two on a scale, the old-fashioned scales that you have on each side of the person's arm, you have something to put weights on, the old-time scale, that if you have that kind of a scale, you cannot look for the equality. What's needed more is on the scale of the principles of the universality of capitalism. That outweighs the national characteristics of a society or anything else. That came in vogue during the Khrushchev period. It was during the Khrushchev period that I began to notice that national characteristics of countries became more predominant and more important than universality of the class struggle. I urge people go to the website of the Greek Communist Party, KKE, and you go to them, they did a whole study of where they went wrong when they started to follow Khrushchev and attack Stalin, basically. They now have critically renounced their past. It's the only party I know, actually, that has done that. And read what they say about the universality of Marxism-Leninism and the position of capitalism, that is more important for a communist than the national characteristics of a country. Something that we get criticized with all the time from anarchists is that we are class reductionists, that we reduce everything to a symptom of the class system that we have. And unfortunately, I think it's easy for some people to fall for that and basically become revisionist or liberal in their ideology. And I was wondering how we can fight back against the criticism of being class reductionist and basically perhaps better explain our position. This term, class reduction, look through the history of the left. You're not going to find it. I was in the communist movement for 60 years, never seen it. All of a sudden, I open up the Internet, and there it is. From a 14, 15-year-old and a young generation, they are talking about this. I'll tell you why they're talking about it. Because they have now divided the world into, basically, interests that are connected by gender, are connected by race, are connected by ethnic backgrounds, age, disability, 
This is the dividing line between people in their world. But before that time, the dividing line was very clear, and it was called class against class. That's how we came about. So now we have to make a choice. Are we going to be revising our ideology to the 21st century, which talks about reductionism, which basically says that class is not everything. That's their line. And we know very clearly, as one founding member of the Communist Party, Fannie Heckman, she joined in 1919. I became friends right. with her in 1970. She told me, very simple, class is everything. And that's what young people don't get. They refuse to get it. They actually refuse it. They fight it. They think there's other things that are more important than class. But that is why the party is smaller today, because in Fanny's time, many people in the youth saw that class is everything. Remember, they experienced the Russian Revolution. What was that based on? Was it based on anything more than class? No, it was based on class. And that's the fundamental base. If people don't accept that, they do not belong in a Marxist-Leninist party. Very simple. I think the young generation is almost 40% of American population, and they have no bright future, jobs, married life, and stuff like that. So the Democratic Socialists of America is playing a very, very deceiving role vis-a-vis -vis those sectors of our society. So we have to combat that left-wing communism or socialism or democracy, whatever you may call it, from our ideological standpoint. Which thoughts in the left would be considered revisionists, like Maoists, Trotskyites? Which ones necessarily are revisionists? Well, they revised everything that Marx said. Number one, let's talk about the working class. That is the only group that is capable of carrying through a social revolution, correct? That's what Marx bases everything on. Because he says that their closeness to the means of production, which is what? What is the definition of means of production? It is the natural resources, it is the factories, and the labor force. Those are the three elements that make up the means of production. And the closest one is the proletariat. They're the ones that Marx says, the factory workers, that they have the ability to make social change. Well, what happened with Maoism? How did that start out? Well, you all know what happened in 1928 in Shanghai. The party led an upheaval, and it failed, just the way it failed in 1905 in Russia. So what was done then? They said, well, we have to change our tactics. We cannot rely on the working class because there's not enough cities in China that are developed. So we're going to go to the farmers. We're going to go to the peasants. And that was the beginning, in my estimation, a clear change in what the message of Marx was. The peasants should be allies to the working class. The peasants should not be the main leaders of the revolution. And we can debate that, but that seems clearly different than what Marx was saying.
So, again, the article from 1974 from Cuba, from their newspaper. Here we find also the picture of opportunism, which is the political aspect in which the revisionist theory is reflected. So they take their revisionist theory and they reflect it, and what they come across is pure acceptance of opportunism. We call our readers' attention to these matters. Why? Because in the struggle against imperialism, it is imperative that the ideological level of our cadre, that's what the school is about, comrades, and the great masses of the people, that the ideological level be raised. And such a rise in that level can only be attained by knowing and confronting not only the thesis of the capitalists, but also revisionism itself and its counterpart, which we just said is opportunism. And this is opportunism from the right, and we can have opportunism from the left. Sectarian adventurism for all these expressions serve the interests of our class enemies. The ultra-left sounds great, but the end result, according to what Lenin is saying, is that it serves the interests of our class enemies. Opportunism from the right, and that means social democracy, distinguishes itself by trying to replace the Marxist line, the Marxist line, with a line of bourgeois reformism. Its long course runs all the way from the German Bernstein and the renegade Kautsky to present-day figures. The current theories of opportunism from the right are, and this was in 1974, listen to this, technocratic reformism. I said, oh my God, these are our friends on the internet. Technocratic reformism. This is the current theories of opportunism from the right. Its concept of new historical blocks and its thesis of certain models of socialism. The past few decades, now he's talking about in the 70s, have been marked by the appearance of a new category of revisionism known as polymarxism, and that's what we have today. So now I'm going to explain what polymarxism is, and you're going to get a kick out of this. Another word for it is polyvalent, P-O-L-Y-V-A-L-E-N-T. The polyvalent character of the Marxist theory. It means that it is possible for several types of Marxism to exist at the same time. Doesn't that sound like liberalism? This is an interpretation of Marxism in different ways, according to different social systems and national characteristics. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? In this case, it is related to the theory that there can be different models 
of socialism which are acceptable. I thought that was fascinating that I came across this part of the conversation that people on the left are having with polemics, that we should all be working together. We should not be analyzing other people on the left ideology, and that we have to consider the quote that Lenin mentions is taken out of context to serve anti-Lenin positions. Polymarxism is simply the alleged, you know what the word alleged means, the alleged right of any opportunist to pick and choose whatever thesis they want from Marxist theory and discard, get rid of others. This could be described best as a method of, quote, pick and choose to suit your own purposes, end quote. It is used by the bourgeois who call themselves Marxists. That's the fascinating thing. It is used by the bourgeoisie itself to sow seeds of disunity in the communist movement. Question. What is polymarxist theory based on? Answer. According to these theoreticians, Marxism is not, N-O-T, a science. Not a science, but rather a guide to an ideology that reflects reality in accordance with practical objectives. Hence, since objectives change, which means tactics and strategies change, since objectives change, Marxism should also have different points of view. I said, oh my God, that's the epitome of liberalism. I want to end that there. Could we open up the questions just on that? And then I'll go into certain things that was said by the CPUSA under the leadership of Sam Webb. To me, polymarxism is a rejection of Leninism. And so all these people that want to be Marxists don't want to be Leninists. They don't accept Lenin and Stalin and their leadership and their ideas. And so that's the basic difference. For example, like I said before, Euro-communism in Spain, France, and Italy, and also in Japan, are classic examples of that where they say they are Marxists, that they are communist parties, but they do not accept Leninism and the Soviet experience. So the CPUSA, I think, can be included in that grouping because they reject Leninism also. And so I would ask, as these things have progressed in the CPUSA, I would argue that this revisionist history and these changes began to developed as far back as the 50s. There are definitely connections between the Khrushchev era and what it heralded into the communist movement. Definitely connections between that and Gorbachev later on. Not only economic connections, but political, ideological connections. And yes, I do see the beginning of that. I understood why they had that position. It made sense to them. 
but ideologically it made no sense. They said the Soviet Union no longer was a state for workers and peasants. Now it became a state for the whole people. Well, that is true to an extent. But like all truths, it's only partial. It's only partial. As society developed in the Soviet Union and people took on jobs and factories, not just as workers, but as managers, scientific labs, going into space, all these areas that have nothing to do with factories directly. It became a society of those people also. But the ideology should have never changed, which was not made clear. The ideology has to be a state, above all, for the working class and the farmers. I would view polymarxism as those who don't view Leninism as a continuation of Marxism, and that it hasn't really been carried out. Maybe there's another way to do socialism, and they have different views on that. Like maybe the USSR wasn't socialist and on the path to communism, that they have these different critiques and things like that. But pretty much, yeah, that they don't view Leninism as a continuation. When it comes to polymarxists, does that include Maoists and Hojists and people like that? Or is it more so the democratic socialists and social democrats and the so-called libertarian socialists that claim to reject capitalism but don't adhere to Leninism? Or is it more so no, like... Okay. No, the author made it very clear. Opportunism of the left and of the right. He made it clear. It includes all of them. They all have something in similar... They may come from a different beginning, but at the end, their analysis winds up on the same side. I have an opinion about the great schism of the early to mid-60s between the Soviet Union and China. In other words, between Khrushchev and Mao Zedong. So Mao Zedong, of course, didn't like the idea of Khrushchev erasing Stalin from history, basically, because that's pretty much what he did. And Mao Zedong was right about that because Stalin was 75% correct. Some mistakes, but altogether he was correct. But Khrushchev said he was 100% bad, basically. So Khrushchev was saying to Mao that he was sectarian and ultra-left and things like that. But in a way, Mao Zedong was right at the time, too, because the people's protracted war idea which he used as they developed in the 30s and all the way to the victory in 1949, that was good. It worked. The peasant army, the long march, the red army surrounding the cities, that was good. And it's good for certain countries, you know, Colombia, Philippines, NPA, no problem. But Khrushchev rejected that. And then Mao Zedong became crazy in late 60s talking about Soviet Union being social imperialist. So it's like they all went bad. You had good in them, but they went bad too. What Comrade Angela read describes the democratic socialists to a T. The fact that they don't identify as Marxists, but the fact that they have to rebrand socialism to make it palatable for Americans. And I get in conversations with friends all the time. I point out how AOC is picking and choosing what she considers socialism, how she has failed to condemn the bombings on Syria or has failed to condemn what is happening in Haiti right now. 
they call that bad faith critique. They say it's not helping our struggle. So they see the democratic socialists as part of our struggle, as part of the fight for global socialism, and it couldn't be more wrong. These democratic socialists, they opportunize. They pick and choose what they want out of socialist theory, and they recruit people away from actual revolutionary action. So that's exactly what it is. I'm wondering what went wrong in the old CP. I'm not as familiar with the history of it, but it seems to me that the literature on revisionism and opportunism has always existed in Leninist parties. And so why wasn't the old party conscious of the revisionism that existed in their party and what went wrong there? It's simple. I saw it when I was living in the Soviet Union. For whatever reason, I can't give you the reason. The generation that carries out the revolution fails miserably to remind the upcoming generation what life was like before. And I saw that in the Soviet Union. They had no understanding of what capitalism was. They were poisoned by Voice of America, American films, and they thought the streets were paved with gold in the United States. And I asked them, well, don't you know your own history, what capitalism was under Tsarist Russia and how life was treated by the majority of the people? And they said, yeah, we go over it, but we really don't study that much. And it's what I got in the party here. All my years in that party, I never read Stalin once, never was encouraged to read Lenin at all in study. Our introduction to the party was from the 1930s. Forget about the 1919, and the movie Reds goes into 1919 and 1920. All that is denied us. So the next generation that came up in the party had no knowledge of the history. The only one they talked about a little bit was Browder, and the way they talked about Browder, it was completely out of context. It was amazing. It was he was bad, and therefore the problems were with him. And after he was gone, the problems were erased. The problems were never erased. They were always there. We always had people in the leadership who were harboring anti-communist attitudes. The truth that shows what I'm saying, how do you explain that after Gus dies, the anti-Soviet elements within the party took power the same day that he died. His body was still warm, and people like Sam Webb, John Bechtel, they took over. How did that happen? Because we didn't know our history. We were not told to beware of this kind of thinking. That's the reason, simple as anything. That's why these classes are important. Do you think all the people that come into our party, comrade, do you think they know what's going on in our history? No. They think they do. They want to, some of them. For the comrades who've been asking for examples, there's probably no better one that I can think of that's been even outlined and analyzed by Stalin as the factional dispute between the groups of Lovestone and Foster in the late 20s. In fact, it went up to the common turn for discussion, and so Stalin delivered a speech in the American Commission on the Presidium of the Executive Committee of the Comintern, 
And he says, comrades, since quite a few speeches have been delivered here and the political position of both groups in the Communist Party of the United States of America has been sufficiently clarified, I do not intend to speak at great length. I shall not deal with the political position of the leaders of the majority and the minority. I shall not do so since it has become evident during the course of the discussion that both groups are guilty of the fundamental error of exaggerating the specific features of American capitalism. You know that this exaggeration lies at the root of every opportunist error committed both by the majority and the minority group. It would be wrong to ignore the specific peculiarities of American capitalism. The Communist Party and its work must take them into account. But it would still be more wrong to base the activities of the Communist Party on these specific features since the foundation of the activities of every Communist Party, including the American Communist Party, on which it must base itself, must be the general features of capitalism, which are the same for all countries and not specific features in any given country. Chapter 10 of Black Bolshevik by Harry Haywood, called Lovestone Unmasked. It goes into a lot of detail about that, and it goes into the revisionist theories of American exceptionalism of Lovestone. But to my question, I wanted to say about the polymarxism stuff, I recently went on a reading group that was not associated with any organization. It really speaks to my experience there when I heard this stuff about many Marxisms, because that's exactly how they spoke about Marxism there. They spoke about it like this indigenous Marxism, almost like what we were talking about with the class reductionist comment, where every single one of these interest groups could have their own Marxism in accordance with their objectives. And I think this is really prevalent in these people who are taking from the academic Marxist tradition, not the communist movement. As I'm listening to this lecture, something that comes to mind when we're speaking about polymarxism, it's something that ties into previous classes we've had here where we talked about bourgeois baggage. And I think for me, I'm taking it as polymarxism being a byproduct of individualism. Like, there's this way or there's that way, and we can all figure out our own way, and no way is wrong. I think what is significant is all those polymarxists in the 60s, 70s, and up to now, all of them have failed. They have not achieved anything. Look at Eastern Europe. They had so many left-wing politicians like George Lukács. In Italy, you had Berlinger, the Euro-Communist movement. You have people like in the France, uh, Marques and Mitterrand, and the United States, the academic intellectual Herbert Marcos, who was the professor of Angela Davis. But on a global scale, what is left is only Marxism-Leninism. They are all gone. That's how I see it. He mentioned somebody from France named Herbert Marcuse, M-A-R-C-U-S-E. Very important. He was the prime teacher for Angela Davis when she first got involved with the Black Panther movement. That was her guru, as we used to say in the 60s. Herbert Marcuse was anti-Lenin. Are we shocked when someone like Angela Davis goes full circle from Herbert Marcuse to the leadership of the CPUSA? And then in 1991 leaves in a split as a leading force taking people away from the CPUSA into her new left organization called 
COC, Committees of Correspondence. Are we shocked? No, because look what her first teacher was. So he was one of the poly-Marxists. The new left, SDS and the poly-Marxism of all those groups back in the day, the weathermen, they all claimed to be some sort of Marxist or communist back then, but none of them were. Were they members of the CP? They were. They weren't for very long. Did not. Now, the Occupy movement. Where do you think the Occupy movement came, which was within the last seven, eight years? Where do you think that came from? That came from SDS. It came from something called participatory democracy. That was the term. And it was based on consensus. In other words, we gave up on having a short discussion and then voting on something. What we did is we stood and we talked for hours and hours and hours until the ones that were there had to go to work, had to leave. Who was left? Basically, the two people had no jobs and were being supported by their family. And they would win because then they would have a consensus. Well, we all agree. Yeah, you all agree because everybody left. And that's what the Occupy movement came out of, SDS. The new left called itself new left because it hated the old left. That's the reason. They detested the old left. They were anti-Stalin. They were anti-Lenin. Many of them also were anti-class struggle Marx. Who they loved? The early Marx. The one who was 20 years old before he got married and the one who would go and go to drinking bars. That's the early Marx. That's the one they liked. Angelo had mentioned that the polymarxist had said that since reality changes, there need to be fundamental shifts in Marxism to accommodate that. How does that contrast with the Marx quote that I've heard a lot, which is, when reality changes, the truth changes? What part of the truth needs to change, given changes in reality? Marx says, just like nature, things are constantly in motion. By the way, Einstein said the same thing, if you know anything about what Einstein was saying, that everything is in motion constantly. It's changing. And Marx took that and he applied that idea, that scientific idea, to other things in society. And so, therefore, what was true at one point may not be true at another point because the reality is different. And I gave as an example, 1936, the Soviet Union was trying to have a united front against Nazi Germany and Italy, and the West refused to do it. It was called collective security. They were calling for this ever since Italy invaded Ethiopia in the 20s at something called the League of Nations. The Soviet ambassador, Maxine Litvinov, was calling for that. And if you want to see more about that, get the film Mission to Moscow. It starts with that whole period of how the West refused to join because they hoped that the Germans would turn to the East and invade Soviet yeah, Russia first. This whole issue that by 1939, the reality changed. It was obvious that the Soviets had to form a non-aggression pact. It was not the Soviet Hitler pact, the Stalin Hitler pact, the way the West loves to call it. 
The correct name is a Soviet-German non-aggression pact, which says simple, you don't attack me and I won't attack you. That's simply what it is in a simple way. And they did it to buy time. So what was true during the Spanish Civil War, that was not true. The line changed in the party, the whole Communist International. You look at the stuff that came out, and you could see they were talking differently because the reality changed, and therefore the truth changed, and therefore the tactics changed. Stalin's industrialization of the country and the right deviation in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Bolsheviks, written in 1928, he deals very in-depth with the issue of both left and right deviation as well as a discussion on what opportunism is. This is out of print, but I think I should get it reprinted because it exposes the CPUSA. It's a document they put out. It's called Reflections on Socialism. It came out about 2005. Thank you, 2005. 2005. It came out right around the time that John Kerry was running for president. Thank you, I appreciate that. That was this famous document he published with party funds. Right. Well, you should get a hold of this. In it, he actually says that Marxism is not useful unless we absorb, and he gives you the normal thing, absorbs new experience, of course, and adjusts earlier assessments and concepts to new realities. Of course, that sounds very good. Then again, he says that we should not be vanguard. That's a wrong attitude. We should be working in coalition with other people. We're all equal in this struggle. Where did you hear that term? Do you think it comes from a communist background or a liberal background? Then he talks about his version of democracy. Says the Soviet Union was never socialist. Never. It was post-capitalist. Imagine that term. He made it up. Post-capitalist. What the hell does that mean? Post-capitalist. It means anything to everyone and nothing to nobody. But in this document, he attacks the vanguard. Here he is, the general secretary of a communist party, talks about social alliances as being the way to go forward. And then he uses, I want everybody to know this, in this book, he quotes, there are sections of left-wing communism and infantile disorder which he takes out of context to show that his opportunist way of thinking is correct because he deals it after Lenin. But I won't go any more into that. The big thing with him is that every country has to follow their own path. And I think it's extremely interesting that the arch anti-communist in CP history is talking about this. Why is he pushing nationally specific paths? Did that ever come from Tamar Stalin or Dimitrov? We should be thinking of this. I think, Tom Webb, it's very fascinating that a communist party with that solid experience would put someone like Sam Webb, who must have been in the party for so many years, rising through the ranks. And what happened to the rank and file members of the communist party to put him there or to elect him as the next secretary general of CPUSA? It's very weird. Comrade Stalin also wrote an article on industrialization and the right deviation. It's a very formative work 
where the comrade goes into great depth on what right deviation and left deviations are. And I really encourage everyone to read Carmen Foster's history of the Communist Party of the U.S., as well as Stalin's speeches on the CPUSA. I think it's important that we finally take away the veil, the mask that some people in our party have, that they think the anarchists, and specifically the syndicalists, are our allies and they're our friends. They're not. Let me just say that emphatically. They are not our friends and allies. Because we both agree on a certain issue doesn't mean they're our friends. And so he writes in 1906, Anarchism or Socialism? Here's what he says about the anarchists. Marxism and anarchism, they wage a fierce struggle against each other. Both are trying to present themselves to the workers as genuinely socialist doctrine. Some people believe that Marxism and anarchism are based on the same principle and that the disagreements between them concern only tactics, only tactics, so that in the opinion of these people, no distinction whatsoever can be drawn between these two trends. This is a great mistake. We believe that the anarchists are the real enemies of Marxism. Accordingly, we also hold that a real struggle must be waged against real enemies, and the anarchists are real enemies. Marxism and anarchism are built on entirely different principles. One is built on the individual, and the other on the collective. You should get a hold of this pamphlet, Anarchism or Socialism by Comrade Stalin, which was written in 1906, right after the first revolution of 1905, which failed. So it has direct connection of the mistake of thinking that IWW or any of these other groups that are anti-Lenin, anti-Vanguard, that it's just a difference in tactics. They are our enemies. They've always been our enemies from the time of Kronstadt when they tried to derail the revolution when they were on the ship, the anarchists, to the time of Spain which was in the 30s, where they led a counter-revolution against the Republic, all the way up to present day, when they attacked our party, the IWW, knowing fully well what they were doing. And there were people within our party who took the side of the IWW. We have to be understanding this and be weary of it, as Comrade Stalin said, wage a struggle against real enemies. I'll leave it at that. Two reading recommendations, the first one being Black Bolshevik by Harry Haywood. A lot of good information about revisionism in the CPUSA, from Lovestone to Browder. Roughly around there, he gets expelled from the party around the 50s. But if you want to complete the arc all the way to Webb, there's another great reading called International Criticism of Webb's A Party of Socialism for the 21st Century. That's a collection of statements given around 2011 by the Greek party, the German party, the Mexican party, and the Canadian party. And they're all lambasting Webb's theory as the complete abandonment of Marxism-Leninism, class struggle, and they break down exactly why. 
it's an excellent resource for this. Lennon's talking about opportunism and revisionism, and I know that he mentioned something about left-wing fascism or social democrats or democratic socialists being left-wing fascists or something like that. Can someone go into that? Comrade Stalin. During the Comrade Stalin's leadership period, we went through the whole history of what we call social democracy being, and in reality, paving the way. Paving the way. Not being the same as, but paving the way for fascism. And it's called The Meaning of Social Fascism by Earl Browder. We have that pamphlet. That's what you're alluding to. For social fascism, what it essentially is, is a distraction for the advanced elements of the proletariat, those who are more politically conscious and who are trying to join organizations such as the Communist Party or even Democratic Socialists of America, those type of people who are more politically conscious than the other workers, they're being confused and being diverted through this social democracy such as Bernie, the Democratic Party, certain elements in that, progressives. It's basically confusing the workers and their leaders to the point where it's allowing fascism to develop. In the objective reality, it paves the way for the victory of fascism because it doesn't allow the workers to build their political consciousness up to the level required to actually combat fascism and its growth. I'm sure a lot of people here, a lot of comrades, are wondering how we can properly identify and combat revisionism and opportunism. And I just want to say that being here tonight on the class is a great starting point. This is one of the great tools that we have in our arsenal to properly cultivate and build up our ideology and therefore spot these things. The people's school is something that very much separates us from other so-called communist parties. This is what makes us a Marxist-Leninist party. It helps us build up our understanding of everything so that we can properly implement our theory. This lesson brought to mind an interview that I did with the DSA people once where they said, you communists, all you ever do is strategize, strategy, strategy, theory, theory, theory. That's all you ever talk about. Why don't you ever agitate just for the sake of agitation? And I just remember going, what? What are you talking about? And he goes, agitation in of itself is good enough. I almost threw them out of my house at that point. This class brought that back to mind. So I want to thank you for that. Earlier mentioned the Sino-Soviet split and the debate over whether there was a center of communist thought. Could someone expand on that a little bit for me? So in the pamphlet that I recommended by Stalin on the industrialization of the country, he says, Lenin always waged a fight on two fronts in our party, both against the left and against outright Menshevist deviations. Study Lenin's pamphlet, Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder. Study the history of our party, and you will realize that our party grew and gained strength in a struggle against both deviations, the right and the left, the fight against the Otsovists and the left communists on the one hand, and the fight against the openly opportunist deviation before, during, and after the October Revolution on the other hand. 
Such were the phases that our party passed through in its development. Everyone is familiar with the words of Lenin, that we must wage a fight both against open opportunists and against left doctrinaires. Does this mean that Lenin was a centrist, that he pursued a centrist policy? It obviously does not. That being the case, what do our right and left deviators represent? As to the right deviation, it is not, of course, the opportunism of the pre-war social democrats. A deviation towards opportunism is not yet opportunism. We are familiar with the explanation Lenin gave of the concept of a deviation. A deviation to the right is something which has not yet taken the shape of opportunism, which can be corrected. Consequently, a deviation to the right must not be identified without and out opportunism. These deviators, both rights and lefts, are recruited from the most diverse elements of the non-proletarian strata, elements who reflect the pressure of the petty bourgeois elemental forces on the party and the degeneration of certain sections of the party. It is obvious that these elements are incapable of absorbing anything genuinely left and Leninist. They are only capable of nourishing the openly opportunist deviation or the so-called left deviation, which masses opportunism with left phrases. So what Stalin is essentially describing here is that being in the center is not necessarily a physical situation. It's an ideological and a political situation. You can't just call yourself a center communist. It's a struggle against both the left and the right. I wanted to know where the line is drawn between revisionism, this is in terms of the Communist Party leaving the state, the line drawn between revisionism and having to adapt to certain material conditions as if it were like an existential threat. And when I ask this, I have in mind countries like Vietnam after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. If one of those things that they had to adapt to was to open up the market, as they say, and make these market reforms in order to get some hard currency to develop themselves, would that be considered a deviation away from Marxism in a revisionist sense? I mean, that's a big question that everybody's talking about. And I think it's a question that needs to be dealt with. I think we have to get away from romanticism to answer that question. We have an attachment to the revolutions in Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam. And sometimes it colors our understanding of facts and science because we have a romantic attachment to it. We have to understand that. How unbiased are we? If we're in love with someone, we tend not to see or make excuses for their inadequacies and their mistakes. You'll notice that. We'll always do that. I think we can't afford to do that when it comes to the working class. I think we have to be more honest. We have to. And what is the reason why we're Marxists? What does Marxism talk about? Does it tell us to use capitalism in order to get to socialism? That's a good question. And you're not going to find that anywhere. If you can't find it, please bring it to our attention. But you're not going to find it in my studies of either Marx or Lenin. Not once do they go into that. And again, the barometer of a revisionist is to say, well, it's a different time. Well, of course, they always do that. They'll always say that. Whether it's now we have computers, and so therefore we have to deal with reaching the working class differently, or whatever. 
But this idea that was tried for eight years in the Soviet Union, it was called Bukharin's Road to Socialism. And what did we learn from that? Well, we learned that it created a middle class. That's what we learned. And that the objective of the middle class, according to Marx, of all people, that their loyalty is never to the working class. Their loyalty is always to the capitalist class. Whenever you have a middle class, that's where they want to be. So this idea that you could have left-wing billionaires is not a Marxist idea. It's a new left idea. It comes out of people like Caleb Marpont, people like that, who Caleb himself is a very young fellow, has no experience in the communist movement the way the old-timers do. So I think everything he says should be looked at 17 different ways. Doesn't make sense. The whole idea of a socialist market, our party is very clear on that. We're opposed to market socialism. To the comrade who had asked about Vietnam and opening up the markets, it reminded me of a class that we had not too long ago. I'm not sure which one, but at one point, I believe it was Comrade Angelo, and he had said that you don't use capitalism to fix the problems of socialism. So problems of socialism, we don't use market reforms to cure those ailments, that that's not how it works. And I also used to struggle with that, too. But being in the school has really helped me understand all that. The idea of polymarxism is also a rejection of vanguardism. Vanguardism means that the working class is the vanguard of society and that the Communist Party is the vanguard of the working class. And so those two concepts are rejected by the Marxists who are reformers, the social democrats and such. The book that's really good that our comrade going to love, it's called Molotov Remembers. And Molotov was Stalin's right-hand man, you know, all his time from age 15. He died in 86, age 96. He was the oldest Bolshevik alive. And in the book, there's something pretty cool that I didn't know. He talks about the comrade Litvinov that Angelo mentioned earlier. He was a commissar of foreign affairs of the USSR, and he did the collective security negotiations, all of this. But man, after he was removed from that position, he went ambassador to the US. And one time, the KGB or NKVD, they had a microphone listening to him, a conversation that he had with an American journalist, and he said to him, to the journalist, he said that US should exercise outside pressure on the USSR, in other words, military pressure to make things change. He was a traitor. You got to read this in that book. You guys are going to love it. Earlier, a comrade had asked about how when the reality changes, the truth changes, and how that ties to polymarxism. And something that helps me a lot to understand the concept of adapting to our conditions is that there's ideology there's strategy, and then there's tactics. All of them are important, but each one is a different thing, and each one has different levels of importance. So something that should not change is the ideology. It's kind of like the North Star. If the North Star changed all the time, you'd be lost. Then uh, strategy 
it's similar to like our mode of transportation to get to where we are going, which sometimes can change. But I think as far as adaptation to conditions goes, tactics is what is most moldable because the tactics are like how we conduct the mode of transportation, how we decide to drive that car or boat, et cetera. That's my understanding of it. I've really enjoyed this talk and Angelo addressing a lot of the issues that I have with modern armchair activists that we see on the internet, the ones that say everyone's an idiot except me and then block you if you disagree with them. This almost a reactionary trend of saying the workers can't do anything, they should just listen to me and I'll tell them exactly what to do. This mindset that sets in when these people don't engage with the workers, they don't engage with public activism. They don't engage with anybody but people who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. A common thread that comes through what we're doing through the class is talking about ideology. And like Sam Webb gave up class struggle for liberalism. A book I really recommend everyone, if they get the chance to get it, you can get it in like electronic format if you want, but it's Liberalism, A Counter History by Domenico Lucerto. Domenico Lacerdo is a historian and a communist from Italy who wrote several books that posthumously are being translated into English. And this book, it's really powerful, showing how liberalism was attended with the rise of chattel slavery, which was even worse than slavery in the past. And it just goes through the history of how liberalism was a counter-revolution. And it shows you what these people who reject class struggle are implicitly giving their sanction to IWW, groups like that, how they don't explicitly say they're socialists. There was a very minority internet corner of libertarians that called themselves left libertarians. They're basically free market anarchists. And there are some of them that identified with Murray Rothbard and parts of Marx or like mutualism or Proudhon or stuff like that. That lets you know what kind of people, some of them support IWW, so they're not opposed to those kind of people. Quote I read from Stalin that I think aids in some of the discussion here. It is necessary that our cadres have a thorough knowledge of Marxist economic theory. At first, the old generation of Bolsheviks were very solid theoretically. We learned capital by heart, made conspectus, held discussions, and tested each other's understanding. This is our strength and it helped us a lot. The second generation was less prepared. They were busy with practical matters of construction. They studied Marxism from booklets. The third generation is being brought up on satirical and newspaper articles. They do not have any deep understanding. They need to be provided with food that is easily digestible. The majority has been brought up not by studying Marx and Lenin, but on quotations. If matters continue further in this way, people would soon degenerate. In America, people argue, we need dollars. Why do we need theory? Why do we need science? With us, people may think similarly. When we were building socialism, why do we need capital? This is a threat for us. It is degradation. It is death. In order not to have such a situation, even partially, we have to improve the level of economic understanding. And I would say that really ties into this discussion on revisionism because really if you have a strong party as we're attempting to build here with our school that has a thorough understanding of the theory, it's much more difficult to let revisionism take hold within a party or within a movement as a whole. The comment made about polymarxism, I know I've seen, especially online, I see a lot of different sects of Marxism, stuff like autonomous Marxism, 
libertarian Marxism, so on and so forth. And a lot of times I see them come across and a lot of them are frankly incoherent as far as how they kind of apply Marxism. Something that I personally have started to reflect on since joining the party and coming to classes, having a level of discipline, especially if we're in the party, if we're attempting to be cadre, if we're being leaders for the working class, I think a lot of self-reflection on disciplining yourself and holding yourself up to a level of standard to how we're going to operate as cadre, I think is a good thing to do. The history of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union Bolshevik, I highly recommend it. It is extremely insightful and invaluable to understanding Marxism-Leninism, as well as the history of the Soviet Union up to about 39, I believe. And apart from that, the other book recommendations that I made, such as the history of the Communist Party of the United States by William Z. Foster and Stalin's industrialization and the right deviation in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, as well as even Comrade Mao's on correcting mistaken ideas in the party are all excellent choices for delving into the issue of revisionism deviations. We have ideological positions, eight points of unity. People should join us if they accept that. If they don't accept that, there's no reason to make them join this party. They should go wherever they feel comfortable. Necessity is the mother of invention. We had to have this kind of a class. Why should people join a Marxist-Leninist party? Why should they stay in a Marxist-Leninist party? What should they do if they have disagreements in a Marxist-Leninist party? How should they deal with those disagreements? Are there any avenues to bring up those disagreements? All those questions were not asked by people who had joined us, and therefore they don't know the whole situation. I feel that these kind of classes tonight would prepare people so that if anything comes up in the future, they'll know how to deal with it much better than they did in the past. And that's all. So I'd like to continue this next week. And that's it. I want to thank everybody for joining tonight's class. I hope you learned something that you didn't know before. I hope you're now going to do some research on your own on anything we discuss. And that's it. I want to thank everybody. Good night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.